Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great daily newsletters, but all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. A reminder that if you like this podcast, subscribers to Access get an ad-free version of the show every Monday, that's four days, before the public release. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Joining me is Yumi, a.k.a. Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of The China Project, a man who has yet to correctly solve a single Wordle puzzle after nearly 400 attempts. It's amazing. I think that's the record. Jeremy, greet the people, won't you? <laughs> yeah, Wordle is a curse on the world. <laughs> At least Twitter is dying now, so I don't have to see uh, your uh, Wordle results every day, Kaiser. <laughs> well, I've stopped posting. I've stopped playing Wordle. Anyway, um, today we've asked two old friends who are still in Beijing to join us on the show to talk about the remarkable protests that took place over this last weekend in Beijing, Shanghai, and at least six or seven other cities around China. Jeremiah Jenny and David Moser are both familiar to anyone who remembers the show from back in the day when Yumi and I were still in Beijing in that grotty apartment. And they are the co-hosts of the excellent Barbarians at the Gate podcast, which we hope you will check out if you aren't already a subscriber. Jeremiah Jenny is a writer and historian who's lived in Beijing for over 20 years, and he is somebody whose witty and often profound observations I have quoted quite often and liberally in various talks that I've given. Jeremiah, great to see you again, man. David Moser has, of course, co-hosted uh, the Seneca podcast on numerous occasions. He is a true polymath, a linguist, a composer, an outstanding jazz pianist, and a savant on all things Beijing and China. He's lived in Beijing for about 30 years now. David, welcome back to Seneca. Well, thank you for that, Jeremy. That's uh, very flattering. I don't know much about math, though. <laughs> <laughs> or apparently the definition of words. <laughs> <laughs> and the word poly now, uh, I, I re realized from the recent uh, implosion of um, FTX and uh, Sam Bankman frieds empire, uh, poly now means polyamorous. Oh. Um, in, in, in the discourse. But anyway, <clears throat> enough of that. Let's start with the situation in Beijing and elsewhere right now. It is Tuesday evening uh, for you, you, you two in Beijing. And I imagine by the time people hear this podcast, it's going to be at least Wednesday morning. Uh, what is the latest? Well, after a very intense uh, Sunday evening, yesterday evening was relatively quiet. And of course, all attention was on the, the, the spots in Beijing and, uh, the Urumqi Road or Street in Shanghai, where the the, the, the biggest uh, protests took place, but from what I can see from the news and from actually going by Liangmanqiao today or by taxi, there's quite a police presence there already. Uh, so, hmm. whatever and the police presence, and then also the actual tension of the protests, as well as the uh, freezing weather today, probably. Uh, 
kept uh, some of the people that were there last night from coming back again. Yeah, I heard it was like minus 10 with wind chill or something right. like that, huh? Yeah, I mean, the, the, David's absolutely right. The, the two biggest factors, I think, overnight were just that it's incredibly cold today. And it's going to be cold for most of the week. And also, you know, I get the feeling that in a lot of the major cities, and, and there seems to be a different response in the big cities versus some of the smaller cities. But in the big cities, it seems like on the first instance of protest that the police either didn't have orders or they were at least given orders to not crack down so heavily on the demonstrators unless things got very much out of line. That was certainly the case in Beijing. And But the question is, what happens on night two and night three? And it was clear, at least in Beijing, going into Monday night that they had gone to DEFCON, you know, fuck around and find out. And so as a result, they flooded the zone throughout, you know, Liang Machiao, but also in other parts of the city too. So it would have to be a, a pretty brave group of people or a brave person to kind of go out there, stand in the freezing cold, being surrounded by so many of the forces of order. I think the only people who were out there, honestly, were a lot of the uh, journalists just kind of checking out to see if anything was going to occur. <laughs> I've never seen that happen before. So you're telling me that the A4 revolution turns out to be a paper tiger? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's too soon to tell because I think, you know, yeah, just because yeah. the demonstrations haven't continued doesn't mean the sentiment's not there. I think one of the things, and David, you can jump in here too, but just talking to people like on almost all different levels, it's hard to find anyone who's not frustrated, pissed off, depressed all at the same time over what's happening, over the zero COVID situation. And also there are some people too for whom the zero COVID situation is a, a doorway through which other feelings uh, have been building up about things that have been happening in China. That's not everybody. You know, but there are some people who, you know, have expressed frustration with the policies in terms of public health, but also see that as part of a larger issue too. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I always, I also thought that uh, that that was a kind of a serendipitous moment on the Sunday night when when lots of things uh, sort of coalesced and, uh, like uh, revolutions in the past though, in in eighty nine, it was it sort of happened uh, unplanned and and. Uh, you know, uh, sort of on the spur of the moment. And so suddenly they had a lot of people out there and they sort of had a movement without knowing that it was going to happen. And I think that from talking to some people today, I think there's a little bit of feeling that that uh, that this was a sort of, in Chinese, the word is fa xie, right? You're just letting off steam, blowing off steam. And, and there, was, there was tension built up and, and these protests actually succeeded in, in blowing off steam and uh, also for people who were just watching, you know, secondhand, blowing off secondhand steam as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, people watching also felt it. And I think one of the reasons is that uh, everyone knows that there's a there's a problem to be solved here. And I think a lot of people were thinking, well, now, wait a minute. Uh, we we do, there's a lot of things we're upset about and we, there's a lot of uh, aspects of the, of the uh, quarantines and lockdowns that we would like to be uh, at least, uh, you know, modified if not canceled. But we have a big problem to solve here, which is this virus, and uh, this is something that we've that the government has got to take charge of, and we have got to participate in it. And this is not the time for a full full fledged revolution, uh, where the the police the resources of the government is wasted on things like crowd control, and uh, and uh, the people on the street will only exacerbate the infectious rate. And so I think a lot of people, there was a kind of a sensible immediate pullback is the way I felt for, huh. for people I was talking to. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Um, so David, I mean, how would you characterize uh, people's feelings about the virus at the moment? Because uh, it, it certainly um, seemed that the World Cup was one of the uh, factors in this, in that people were seeing the rest of the world without face masks. At least that's how it's been read uh, uh, abroad, that um, seeing vast crowds of face maskless people was one of the things that uh, added to the anger. Are people worried about the virus still? Uh, yes, of course. I think people are still worried about the virus. Uh, the problem is that there's frustration that 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 after a sort of spectacular kickoff, where you did have an incredible success at, at crushing crushing the virus very early on, and then preventing. The spread and, and and the incredibly low death rate for such a large uh, country, 
that it seems like China didn't sort of go the, the the extra mile and like finish the job. And it seems like when when people are looking at the outside world, like the World Cup, they're sort of thinking, why aren't we there yet? If if our strategy, if our zero COVID strategy was so successful, but another th- another problem is that people are afraid of the virus, but the the precise sort of risk has been blurred by the fact that all these lockdowns and all these sort of inexplicable temporary uh, sh- quasi shutdowns all come without any explanation of exactly what the scientific basis for it is. Hmm. In fact, one of the biggest problems with all of this is there's a huge lack of information, uh, official information, explaining exactly the epidemic science here that that is supposedly dictating all of these very drastic moves and i think that that people have sort of lost the focus because there there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, statistics about how many cases or how many positive cases in each district and it's broken down in sort of micro statistics but but everyone is kind of lost touch of you know how what is the risk of this new strain how infectious is it what is the death rate what if we just ignored it and and went about our lives would there actually be any sort of a uh, a sort of a disaster. So I think that's the, the government has done a terrible job at, at informing the populace exactly where the risk is here to justify all of these drastic uh, moves. Yeah, it's interesting that one of the things that I keep seeing over and over again in posts and so forth is just bukoshe. Right. Okay. And there's always this sort of appeal as though something scientific would be acceptable uh, if there were, you know, actual appeals to legitimate science. And we'll drill down a little bit into that in just a bit. But Jeremiah, first I want to turn to you and ask, just so that we're clear, what cities are we aware of where actual large-scale protests have taken place? I mean, we've talked about Beijing and Shanghai, but Wuhan, Chongqing, Chengdu, Lanzhou, uh, Urumqi, of course, and even little sleepy Dali. (laughs) Yeah, the Dali protests were very much on brand as they walked down the street with the acoustic guitar. Um, Right, right. Well, there's a, there is a good online map, or at least there's a map that's been circulating on Twitter, and I haven't had a chance to take a look and verify all the data points on it, but it has sh- it shows a pretty large number of cities. Now, of course, I, I think so. There's a little bit of conflation between like the kind of um, demonstrations, you know, as spontaneous as they were that we saw in Shanghai and Beijing, uh, and also acts of resistance, sometimes quite forceful resistance to zero COVID measures. So for example, a factory or a housing complex kind of bursting through the gates or taking down some of the barriers. And these are these are also happening everywhere as well. I think those tend to reflect very much very specifically local concerns like, I really need to get out of this apartment complex now. And maybe a little bit less on some of the broader issues that have been talked about in the international media. On the other hand, it is very clear that some of the protests in the bigger cities, Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, um, there's been some sympathy protests in Hong Kong, uh, Hangzhou last night as well. And there are some oh. good Twitter feeds that that are also kind of archiving this as it happens in real time, kind of scraping things off of the Chinese internet and, in, and taking in videos from people who are submitting them. So it, it's clear that this is something that's happening everywhere, although the things that are happening everywhere may not be the same, if you know what I mean. They may not all be have large-scale demonstrations. They may all be talking about general policy. Some of them are very specific to local situations. I hope you'll give us a list of some of these good Twitter accounts to follow. Yeah, the, the one I've been following is, and, uh, is one called, uh, I think it's Li Lao Shi, Bu Shi Ni Lao Shi. Uh, and it's uh, it's in Chinese, but it's been um, and it's been under attack actually on Twitter most of the day from the usual suspects. But yeah, he, this yeah. the, they or the people who are behind this have been, as far as I can tell, really the kind of the best resource for tracking all kinds of different um, events as they've unfolded in the last at least was, at least four or five days. I've been following it. Yeah, this has taken my recommendation, but that account, uh, the Li Laoshi account, there's also Why You Told Your Law uh, on Twitter. Um, and uh, I think they're the same account, Lee, Jeremy. Is that the same account? I think so. Okay. I think that's his handle, or their, excuse me, their handle. Ah, okay. Um, and then the Intium Media Group, which started in Hong Kong, has been putting out various maps. They were the ones that calculated that 79 uh, tertiary education institutions had students organizing protests. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
What about the size of the protests? Uh, have you uh, either of you got a, an idea of of uh, how big the crowds were? And what are the demographics? I mean, there were some interesting things. They seem to be a lot of students. Uh, young women have also been rather prominent. Any comments on that? Well, I, you know, the size of the protest is like any kind of demonstration is something that gets contested. And especially because a lot of these have been very they've been in areas but have kind of moved around in neighborhoods so it's hard to kind of get everyone together to count so it does seem like at least in beijing um you know the 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 journalists who were there and i should point out i live only about a kilometer or so a kilometer and a half away from this but i wasn't there on sunday night it happened after i'd gone to bed so you know there are journalists and people who have a better first-hand account than i do uh, but it does seem, you know, that I know the size of the space they were in and just based on, you know, an eyeball estimate, I mean, you're talking, you know, for a few hundred people at least, and I would imagine estimates might be even more. I don't know, David, if you heard differently. The, the interesting thing I heard was from a, a former student who's in Shanghai right now, and he, he happened to, I think he said he happened to just wander into the, the protests there and I asked, actually, I asked him that question. I, I said, well, what was, you know, what was the size of the crowd exactly? And he said an interesting thing. He said, do you mean the size of the crowd or the size of the onlookers? And I realized that, in fact, that, <laughs> that makes it very difficult to come up with a number because for all the people that are yelling or holding up, uh, you know, A4 sheets of paper and so forth, there's also a lot of people that are just gawking. We call it rubbernecking, I guess. Uh, and they may mm-hmm. participate or they may yell or they may just be walking through the street. I, I, I don't know. But I mean, I think it's probably impossible once the, and especially uh, you might ask the question also, you mean the crowd in front of the police line or behind the police line? So I, I think it's a blurry concept of crowd size. It's, if you mean everyone that's just there sort of aware of it, that could be in the many hundreds, maybe even a thousand or more. If it's just people actively shouting and getting a press coverage, it may be only you know, dozens or a hundred or something. I have no idea. That, that's long been a feature of dissent in China, though, hasn't it? The, the melon-eating crowds on the yeah, side, right. you know, whether online or in the streets. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think the arguments over crowd size may obscure kind of a larger point, though, which is that to be even to be out there, we've seen some videos of people who have, who, who have been outspoken, even if it's a few dozen people, a few hundred people, they're taking an enormous risk. And to do that can't be diminished at the same time just because they weren't joined by thousands of other people marching in the street doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't the same sentiments there's a lot of reasons why people don't go out in the streets to protest in china not the least of which in chaoyang district many people are still locked in their apartment complexes so i think you know i think when i saw some arguments on twitter about oh it was this size it was that size we're undercounting we're overcounting I'm not quite sure that's the discussion we need to be having. I think the discussion is should be those people who are brave enough to go out and say something, how reflective is what they're saying of a general zeitgeist in a particular city or even in the country? Yeah, and I mean, let's let's stay with that. How would you describe the general level of anger and frustration that you know, on the eve of this crisis? We'll go into what touched it off in just a second, but were you surprised that something like the Urumqi fire was enough to set this tinder alight or was this something you saw as pretty inevitable uh, i think we, we jeremiah and i were talking about this uh, last just yes, last night actually i think part of it was the sort of uh, letdown when after months and months of thinking that the, tra- the trajectory was a positive one and we were moving out of this this phase that suddenly for some reason we still not are sure about there was a spike in cases everywhere and especially in beijing and so everything kind of immediately went back into lockdown after after several months of relative freedom. And I think that you know, even though it's no worse than it was in the past, I think there was a, there was a sense of a massive sense of frustration that happened to coincide at the, the same moment that there was the uh, the fire in Urumqi, and also the the, the fact that um, you had uh, you know this connection to other sorts of demonstrations happening throughout the world. I mean, people were bringing up uh, the protests in Iran. Um, and, and elsewhere. And, and so I think there was just a kind of, it was kind of a, a triggering mechanism that set off this, uh, as I say, they just wanted to, to blow off steam or something like that. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Well, you brought up also it, it, one of the aspects of the crowd is the demographics and the number of young women who are speaking up. Uh, I think that's been a pretty remarkable thing. And, you know, part of it, um, and there are people, let me just be clear, there are people who are much better qualified to speak on this than, you know, a 50-year-old white guy. But I, I, there is a sense that the restrictions, the stress, the anxiety, the pressures of living with zero COVID um, for, you know, three years. And there have been good moments and there's been bad moments. But at the same time, a lot of those pressures have fallen disproportionately on women in relationships, in marriages, in mothers who have to be accountable for kids who are being in and out of school because, you know, unfortunately, childcare often falls on the women in China, even those who are fully employed. And just a, a very non-scientific anecdotal um, spectrum of people that we know, it is striking to me just how much angrier slash depressed so many of our women friends are uh, than necessarily a lot of our male friends who are also upset too. But there's just, I can't even really pin the name for this emotion of just somebody who is so pissed off and depressed at the same time. It, it reminds me a little bit of the way that people felt, some people felt, not everyone, in the immediate aftermath of the election of Donald Trump. Um, hmm. You know, there was that moment of just frustration, um, anger, resignation, depression, all at the same time. And I think impotence that, too, right? To some extent, that's a good point, Jeremy. I think what's being expressed here, I know we're hearing different things like for free speech and for free media and end to zero COVID and all kinds of things. I don't know if necessarily anyone is is advocating a particular ideology or ideological movement. I think these are ways to express that very complicated bundle of emotions that have been building up for a while and have finally found, if only for a moment, brief release. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that you make about uh, uh, the, the burden falling on women. I heard a lot of reporting, you know, talking about three years of lockdown, and I wanted to quibble with that just to say, hey, let's, let's, let's not forget about that relative freedom, you know, be between, you know, what, April or May of, of 2020 all the way through, you know, early this year. Um, actually, a lot of us in the U.S. and in Europe were quite envious of you guys, but we we shouldn't forget that schools for a lot a lot of that period were still remote right. and that you know children were at home and there was a lot of disruption to work life balance and women it fell on 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 the shoulders of women and i think the other co-manalists on this mantle will agree God. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I, I, by the way, I, I just an apology that I mean, I reached. I had to find people who had been living in Beijing for a long time, and sorry, the only two that I thought of were two white dudes. middle-aged white but, males. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the other thing, technically, David, you're a senior now, right? That's so. true. I'm a senior. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a minority. <laughs> I'm an oppressed. You'll never be a I'm senior, a, David. A, <laughs> <laughs> That's worse. Another boomer. <laughs> <laughs> another another side to this is is that in terms of you know you say what's the demographics of, of the anger, I mean this is has a lot in common with some of the past events in that the, basically basically every demographic group has been affected by this, and every class yeah. and every class has been affected by this. Uh, I right now uh, in my apartment here uh, our IE who is um, our, you know, sort of cleaning woman who comes a couple times a week to clean the apartment for the last seven, eight, whatever, 10 years, um, is now living at my apartment because last week she heard that the area that she lived in was going to be shut down at midnight, locked down, and that, that there was no, there was no uh, timetable about when she could get out. And she's someone who's living from month to month, if not week to week, on the money she gets from cleaning houses, you know, she's a baumul, you know, probably taking care of kids occasionally. And she panicked and she called me up and said, you know, can I stay at your house for a few days? I, I don't want to be stuck there. And so she's actually living with me here now for, for a week or so. And uh, like yesterday, day before yesterday, she was in the hallway and overheard, she saw a hazmat suited uh, Dabai going upstairs and heard some people talking about getting a getting a test uh, on someone on the third floor and she was in a sh in a sheer panic she was just literally cringing uh, in her room there 
saying, oh no, they're going to shut this place down too. And if they find out I'm here, she was afraid she was going to get in trouble. And, you know, this is just a slice of the kind of mixture of fear and confusion and uncertainty and monetary, you know, insecurity and all these sorts of things. You know, she's already gone way out of her way to f- figure out a way to get through this. And, and now there's all, there's all these, every situation is fraught with p- potential disaster in one way or the other. And this is just a, everywhere you look, anyone you talk to, there are these pieces or these extended periods of insecurity, frustration, rage, impotence, just a feeling that there's nothing I can do about this. And uh, I think that that's, that's another reason too. Everyone, uh, everyone, you know, and, and also women, of course, are being hit. But everyone from every demographic, every age group, including kids, are, are, are under extreme stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to speak up to you about that three-year thing, Kaiser. You're right that you know there was a time when we in China were able to do some things people in the U.S. weren't able to do, and you know China made that very clear because there was a triumphalist narrative as they the media here proceeded to dunk on the rest of the world, and in an almost mocking tone would regularly post the death rates from the U.S. and other places as well. But that doesn't mean like the last three years have been easy. Every, even back in the you know days of 2020 and 2021 when we were the rest of the world was you know obviously in crisis and it wasn't so much of a crisis here we were still only one outbreak away from getting our apartments locked down businesses yeah. were one outbreak away from losing all their employees so many businesses that were part of the fabric of beijing have not survived um, so many restaurants stores travel businesses the number of people who are key parts of the fabric, both Beijingers and international residents, who had to leave because they weren't able to make a living in the last three years. It, right. I mean, this last year has been particularly hard, but I think part of it was that in those first two years, people here could say at least say, hey, listen, the rest of the world has gone to hell. This is the one safe space, so we're willing to put up with this. But now we're in a situation where, right or wrong, I mean, the pandemic is still a very serious problem, but right or wrong, people are looking at the rest of the world and going, okay, now why are we doing this again? And as David says, the explanations remain consistent. They haven't changed. And the new, there's no, been no new information about why we're keeping going in this way. There is no sense of, hey, this is the plan. And right. we're starting to see a little bit of that this week, just a little tiny bit. But I don't know if it's going to be enough uh, or if it's going to be too late to keep people's anger in check, even if they're not on the street. So, I mean, today there was a, 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 a little bit of commentary that um, suggested there may be more flexibility uh, from one of the state organizations. But even in early November, there was quite a lot of talk that I heard from friends in Beijing about a relaxation of COVID restrictions. And in fact, the party leadership published a 20-point guideline for easing COVID restrictions. What, what was the reaction to those guidelines? And do you think, uh, in hindsight, that... Uh, you know, the population was already grumbling uh, about uh, COVID curbs, that uh, the 20-point guideline was, uh, you know, the state giving a little or signaling a willingness to soften up a bit. Um, I mean, if you think of sort of Tocqueville's, you know, uh, Le Ancien Regime, the, 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 the theory that once the sort of autocratic regime softens, shows a little sign of softening, that's when the trouble starts. Is there any any substance to that? Well, both of us can talk. Jeremiah can talk to this as as well. But first of all, twenty points—that's a lot of points to to, re, to remember. And there and there also the fact that there's so many points means that there's a lot of futzing around with little details. Some of the easing had nothing to do with the, the domestic situation. It had to do with uh, flights coming from abroad and the, the the shortening of quarantine times for for travelers and things like that. So so most of those of the of the tweaking in those points had very little effect on everyday life. And and even the ones that that have been promised the 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 end of the what do they call it the in the second uh, level contact uh, you know uh, tenchuang when the windows pop up you know. Even though they've 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 loosened that restriction, it, ha- it has very little effect on the actual day to day life, and it has very little effect on the insecurity that people feel. And as you know, Jeremiah was saying, we would have two weeks, three weeks, a month of relative freedom, and then sort of arbitrarily there would be su- a sudden lockdown 
Um, I had a lockdown here in my building on my in my residence compound for about a week, and uh, it literally happened instantaneously. It was it had happened just a few minutes before I came home from work, and was told that if you go in, you can't come out. And we had no long we had no idea how long it would last. It turned out they said maybe five days, maybe a week. It turned out to be just four days, but we were never given any explanation. Uh, there was never any uh, mention in the, in the Jue Hui of exactly the timetable, and there was certainly nothing about from the from the Chaoyang authorities uh, saying anything about. And there was actually only rumors that the reason was that five or six people had tested positive in a in a compound, a building, a, a compound that was like a, a, a short distance from our compound. So I mean, mm. this is typical. This is absolutely typical. And so, you know, you may have a brief period of, of freedom and of relatively nor normalcy, and then it just goes away. And it could go away, like with my eyes. Suddenly, she doesn't know when she can go back. No one's told her, even given an estimate. And, uh, you know, this is, so these 20 points, by the way, I, I just noticed that as soon as these uh, protests occur on Sunday, there's these sudden announcements. Uh, the one I saw just today was, Oh, they're going to hold weekly press conferences now, giving updates mm. on the epidemic condition. Well, fancy that! <laughs> Actually, mm -hmm. updates every week, and so and the same thing with uh, uh, they were talking about loosening restriction in Xinjiang came at exactly the same time for exactly the same reason, and also an announcement that they're now going to up they're going to step up va uh, vaccination efforts for for people over eighty. So, you know, this came in almost instantaneously, instantaneously after the, the protests in, in Saturday night. You know, go figure. Yeah, go figure. Speaking of uh, restrictions, how severe has internet censorship been? Are you hearing about outright bans of Weibo accounts or Weixin, WeChat accounts? Or has it just been mostly post deletions? And, and, and you know, as always with these things, people have found really, really clever workarounds, which I always kind of delight in reading about. Uh, what are some of the more clever things that you've seen deployed in the avoidance of censorship? Well, you know, you, you have the usual workarounds on of, of playing around with the files that are actually posted or images or videos that are posted onto Weixin or Weibo that have different elements put into them that help to kind of disrupt the algorithms and require a much more manual process of actually looking at the videos. And that, that, can, that can slow down the censorship. And, you know, I... I I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. I don't know the technical side of it, but it does feel like there are times and people debate this, but like oh, especially overnight when there's a huge deluge of videos, that it does feel like the sensors get a little bit or the censorship apparatus gets a little bit overwhelmed or at least more things are visible. Um there have been yeah. people who have had their WeChat accounts, you know, suspended, which <laughs> If you live in China and your WeChat account is suspended, I mean, it's like someone taking away your, you know, your wallet, your house keys, and your, you know, your your phone at the same time. Yeah, uh, so that has happened. I've had, I know people have had their WeChat accounts locked, which is not quite the same thing, but it's still a pain in the ass. And you know, there are stories, and I, it seems to be quite has been verified that at least in Shanghai and one presumes in other cities where we don't necessarily have people checking uh, that police are asking people to open up their phones just like they do when you get detained one of the first things they'll do is they'll ask you to open up your phone so they can check to see what's on it now they're doing that as kind of a random uh process in, in some parts of shanghai at least for in very sensitive areas and if anyone looks like they've taken a picture we've even seen some uh, reports and you've probably seen the same one that they're checking for things like uh you know vpns like different vpns and things like that I, I don't know how widespread that is but if that's if that's now part that's something that's been happening in places like xinjiang for 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 quite a while yeah if that's now happening in, in some of the big cities you know they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna get a lot of people who have things on their phone they probably shouldn't i, I don't know that many people in beijing at, again this is you know i i the circles that I run in are international circles of, of people who often have lived over abroad. So many of them have VPNs and other software on there that would be seen as problematic. I don't know about, you know, Auntie Lee or Auntie Wong, but still, it is an interesting ramp up of those precautions. Also, the um, the Great Firewall is, ha, is and has always been leaky. And uh, when I first began to get suspicious on Saturday that something was about to happen, 
was that in my WeChat, uh, what do you call it? My WeChat moments. Do we do we use say use that word? WeChat moments. Yeah, we call it moments. Uh, I begin right. to see people, uh, you know, retweeting. We don't say retweet. We re what do we say? Pat, <laughs> reposting, reposting um, videos. Very obvious uh, protests and um, you know various various memes. And uh, these are from people who my friends who would normally not post such things. And I would go back and find some of them deleted maybe 15 minutes later. But the, but it, the, they became such a deluge that, that there was literally no time. And they came one after another. Um, and so I think there was a, a moment when the dam, when the levee broke and people went, oh, it's happening so so fast and furious that there's really no risk at all because there's, there's way too much for them to, to take notice of this one. And then I began to notice, and I, I've actually heard also some reporters talking about this, that you know a lot of people do have VPNs or, they, uh, or people that are reading their tweets do have, or their postings have VPNs also, or have access to the great firewall, outside the firewall. And so they would they would take screenshots or save videos, put them on Twitter, and then now they're worldwide. And then then the, then other people begin to to get on Twitter and find stuff they like, and then put it back on on, on uh, Weixin or Weibo. <laughs> so you had this flow back and forth of people posting stuff, putting it on the, the foreign internet, getting it back inside of the Great Firewall. You know, sometimes the same people, but sometimes people just sharing stuff indiscriminately. So the leaky, the levee broke for a while with the Great Firewall is what happened. So let's talk a little bit about students. Uh, the Communist Party is uh, used to, but also particularly jittery about university protests for some reason. Um, w- what has happened on college campuses in Beijing and elsewhere? Um, and uh, I think I've heard rumors that Tsinghua is planning to end the semester early and go to remote learning, sending students home. W- what do we know about that? Yeah, it does seem that the universities are offering special discounted or free tickets for students who want to depart early for vacation. Um, it's not just Tsinghua. Apparently, other universities are doing the same thing as well. And yeah, there is a sort of, I guess, feeling of sending the youth back to the countryside or back home. <laughs> to, to. But the other thing, too, and, and, and David, who, who works more regularly on campuses right now than I do, uh, can, can talk about this, but university campuses have been particularly sites of frustration. The restrictions placed on faculty and students have been much more onerous and and ongoing, like all the way back to 2020, uh, than almost any, at least any other subset I can be I, 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 I'm aware of. Uh, maybe in factories it's the same thing, but I just know in Beijing, talking to people who work in universities, who are students there, you know, they have to apply. They, sometimes they have to apply to leave campus. Faculty have to apply to go back home. Some students aren't able to leave campus at all. And, you know, a lot of students that I've talked to have this feeling of like going a little bit stir crazy. So it, it wasn't terribly surprising that, you know, once a couple of students or a few students at, at especially at elite universities like Peking University or Tsinghua start speaking up, they're going to attract a crowd and a crowd will make people brave and people will also start speaking out as well. And because these are some wicked smart kids, they've got some wicked smart ways of doing it. And uh, some of the manifestos that have at least been circulating online that are purportedly from the students, um, you know, they have, they're the kind of documents that, you know, are interesting to read and, and maybe worth saving depending upon how things turn out as a, you know, a primary document for future historians. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, it's definitely been a, a hardship for students uh, because they sort of live in, you know, they're just sort of limbo. They're, they they either have homes uh, in other provinces or in Beijing, and then they have their dorms, and so and then the, so the 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 constant switching back and forth. I mean, it's been hard enough on me as a teacher to keep keep uh, ping ponging between campus teaching and online teaching and it gets very disorienting but for them it's it is really hardship because you know they have to they have to take into account you know their daily lives their meals their families you know how, how do they actually go about their daily lives but also um i i've had a sense that the student demographic when you mix it into all the other people that are upset they have they are the ones who have a little bit more of a historical awareness and a sort of ideological grievances 
that they they bring to the to the uh, to the complaint as well. Whereas most of the people, if you ask them, you know, what's the point of all of this disgruntled writing and protests, they would say it's just it's the COVID uh, protocols and, and the lockdowns and the uncertainty. That's what that's what's making us mad. The students would say the same thing, but but they have very quickly gone to the other very long-standing grievances about. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom, academic freedom. They've also been the victim uh, in the last 10 years or so of increased ideological education. That uh, you know, Students are now, way, they've gone back to the 1970s at least, 80s, um, with uh, you know, useless, dry you know, requirements for Marxist education. Uh, they, they, of course, they're very uh, invested in freedom of the internet and freedom of ex- exploring cyberspace, and they're frustrated with that. And and also, they're just they see themselves. You know what you saw during these protests is people were bringing up the same things as the as the eighty nine protesters were. They're they're bringing up uh, the New Youth magazine, you know, the May Fourth movement, and bringing up quotes from Chen Duxiu and from Chairman Mao, and think things about freedom and and Lu Xun. Bringing up the the uh, you know this famous story about or the analogy or metaphor of the iron the iron house, uh, the Lushun's famous uh, metaphor, right. and all these kinds of things. The students are more aware of that, so they that goes into the mix. But my feeling is that the people who are not students, uh, they may resonate with that to some extent, but that's not really their gripe. And and the students, I think some of the students are trying to write manifestos and kind of getting a movement going. But I, I don't sense any any enthusiasm for that. People are not in the mood. Huh. People are not in the mood for an ideological revolution. We're not in the mood to solve that problem right now. I think the immediate problem is the is the is the epidemic. Yeah, you've anticipated the question that I was going to ask you, which was you know about the inevitable comparisons to 1989, and I, I don't think that people can be faulted for going there mentally right away. Uh, I mean, it, it obviously. Uh, is something that many of the students themselves are doing. So people who on the on the outside who make those comparisons aren't completely, you know, uh, without some foundation. But again, I, I was going to ask you, you know, how useful those comparisons are, and I think you've answered that pretty well. I mean, well, I think one of the the questions, you know, we always talk about this, but this the last couple generations of Chinese students who grew up after 1989, part, uh, you know, they were part of the patriotic education that you know was brought in was brought in as a reaction to what had happened in 1989 and of course there's been all this you know debates about student nationalism and patriotism and you know the the little pinks and all this kind of thing i think one of the interesting things that i've been seeing and again it is impossible to generalize we're talking a lot of different people a lot of different students a lot of different places but it is interesting to see how a lot of the students are framing their dissent, and this was, this does have some through lines to 1989 as well, as as part of a nationalist, you know, movement. They they are still being patriots. They are still being nationalists, but they are opposing certain policies. They are opposing certain aspects of how things are being run, and that if you're a member of the party, that could actually be, on some level a little bit threatening because the idea that many of these students might be waking up to the uh, the notion that the party and the government and the government and the people may in fact have some divisibility is probably a lesson the party would not want the students to learn. I don't want to take this too far. This is not, I'm not saying there's some huge wedge or anything, but I do think that there are some students who have been raised in this patriotic education hothouse who are starting to kind of question some of the assumptions that they've been making over most of their lives. And one could make an, an argument that part of the sort of, you know, depression, anger, uh, dissonance that we're seeing is, you know, a little bit of that awakening process. Mm-hmm. Connected to that uh there has been a lot made of people in Shanghai shouting Xi Jinping Shatai and Gongchangdang Shatai. And these were indeed very shocking. I mean, if you've been following China since uh, the chairman of everything has been in power, I mean, you don't hear this, you don't see this kind of language in China. Um, but how big of a threat to the regime do you think this really is? You know, I think that, first of all, we don't really know where this is going, but I do feel that for most people who are out there who are either resisting the zero COVID policies or demonstrating with blank pieces of paper 
or in other ways. I think the the catalyst for this has a lot to do with the immediate situation right now and a questioning of the governance of the party rather than necessarily questioning of the party's existence unto itself. And so, you know, I think a little bit like how some we some it was possible to misread some aspects of 1989. You know, we outside of China are often conditioned to see any kind of unrest as being specifically attacking the system itself. And I'm not saying there weren't people who were definitely saying that or who have that idea in mind, but my feeling, and this is also just kind of talking to people who weren't at the protest, kind of private conversations. I don't feel like there's that many people who are like, we have to overthrow the system. It's more like we need the system to work. And right now the system is not working for us and we need to do something about that. Now in a system like this, of course, there's not much that can be done. And so you can understand why that frustration, at least for some of the bolder people, angrier people, or more ideologically minded people might take the form of shouting things like, you know, down with Xi Jinping or down with the party. And I'm sure those sentiments were in the crowd. Absolutely. I just wonder how much that was the dominant feeling versus some of the other more immediate problems. Yeah, yeah. Which echoes, I think, what David was saying earlier. Um, now, on a, another subject, um, uh, coming from completely the other side, there, there have already been some state actors and pro-state voices who've suggested that all of this is, of course, a plot by hostile foreign forces, uh, including some fairly influential people like um, Chairman Rabbit Rani, who's you know a popular kind of nationalist blogger. Do you think that this uh, story will have any uh, will have legs in China? That the foreigners are behind all of this. Already seeing on a WeChat, like WeChat, yeah, yeah, yeah. WeChat groups I'm in. Oh, yeah, I see some. I'm just seeing some crazy shit. Like this is also part of the whole. The U.S. Navy has shown up off the coast. This is a coordinated effort <laughs> that saboteurs within your. No, this is within the apartment complex. Saboteurs are going to be weakening the resolve of the Chinese people at the same time the U.S. Navy is planning an attack. And uh, yeah, I saw it this afternoon. And that was fun, and I I yeah. thanked my father-in-law for sending that message. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, the, the protests in Beijing were by Liang Maqiao, that's, right? So the foreign that's district. close to the U.S. Yeah, embassy. Right. Yeah, that was that, Chairman Rabbit's primary evidence for the hostile foreign forces. I, I, don't know if Chairman right. Ra- I don't know where Chairman Rabbit lives, but Liang Maqiao, that area, is has been a, 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 an attractive spot for all kinds of activities since COVID occurred. When they closed the bars, that's where everyone went to go drink. It was called like, you know, hook, out by the, hook up by the hua, because everyone would go out there and party to like three or four in the morning like i'd go i go running out there like five o'clock and there'd still be like a couple hundred people like just hanging out like just drinking and playing guitar and stuff and so you had families picnicking and people partying it's not a surprise it's one of the few spaces right now in beijing that's kind of park-like it's scenic it's in an area with a lot of residential uh, compounds there were a lot of restaurants and bars in the area that are now closed yes it's close to the embassy but I think a lot of it had to do with it's one of these spaces where you don't have to go through any gates or any checkpoints to get to. And it's been a place where people have been hanging out for most of the last couple of years, especially this this last year. So, yeah, I think I think Chairman Rabbit needs to do a couple of deep knee bends. <laughs> you know, there was, a, I think, again, a woman, I think, stated this when, when someone was accusing, you know, foreign influences of, in, in these protests and she said, "Oh, do you, by foreign influences, who do you mean? People like Marx, Engels?" That's what the hostile foreign forces would say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but my my re- 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 response to that would be: foreign influences? Haven't you come to Beijing? There's no foreigners left. There's no foreigners here to influence anything. <laughs> <laughs> David, David, you circulated on Facebook and Twitter a recent Nature Medicine paper. Uh, that models the likely consequences of actually lifting restrictions. And it was written, you know, a multi-author peer-reviewed paper. Uh, and the projections are pretty grim. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how you think the the regime is thinking about, you know, changes to COVID, to well, dynamic zero COVID? Right, yeah. So this paper is just one of many, right? So it doesn't really matter too sure. much the specifics but basically, uh, it was modeled on, uh, I think, as of May of this year, if they had lifted restrictions and there were still no new vaccines available or any better vaccines available, the prediction was that something like uh, 1.5, there would be 1.5 million deaths within a certain amount of time. 
uh, 77% of those being people over 60. Um, and that there were, it would, that there would be a, uh, stress, stress, 15 fold stress on the ICUs that would be, you know, beyond anything that they could currently handle and so on and so forth. This is right. just one model, right? And you don't know, I mean, there, there's all sorts of contingencies that could, that could occur. But the idea is that any model you do at this point is going to look something like that. And the reason, you know, that the quandary that the party has now, and many people are discussing this, is that they, they basically had um, a really uh, good idea of how their system could be employed early on to do it, to go a different route, which is uh, zero COVID, to crush it. And then with, with, you know, monitoring and stuff to keep the, the cases as low as possible and to keep the death rate as low as possible. But incredibly, it seems like they didn't think ahead to the fact that at some point you have a population that doesn't have any herd immunity, that, the, that you ought to be have been spending the last two years rushing to get uh, vaccines in the arms of people over 60, because that's where the death rate is. And yet, astonishingly, this, the, the party didn't do that. They sort of squandered the entire last year uh, w- without actually promoting, you know, more vaccinations for older people and, and either developing or borrowing a vaccine that would work. And, uh, you know, there, people know this. It's, it's, it's completely open. Uh, and people, you know, it's, it's not a secret to the, the general populace that uh, just merely uh, lifting all the restrictions is not going to solve the problem. It's going to just create another problem. So they've created a situation where all they can do is keep, uh, you know, zero COVID policy, which is destroying the economy and actually leading to the sorts of situations we have now, which where people are revolting, you know, or you can just uh, loosen things up and, and let the death rate take its to- let, take its natural course. There's no other po- no other choice. They they painted themselves into a corner, right? So I, I I have talked to some people. This is even before all these protests, and and the, the issue of vaccines would come up. And uh, I have a next I have a neighbor here in the compound who goes out for young or char invites me along. But he but he said literally this is like a month or two ago. He said. He said, the, they're, they're afraid of losing face if they say, look, we can't develop a good vaccine. We're going to borrow Pfizer or Moderna or something or other, and we're going to put it in the arms of everybody over 60. He said, he said they're afraid of losing right. face. And he said to me, he said, that's exactly the opposite case. If Xi Jinping were to come out and, and apologize and say, look, we miscalculated. We're now going to buy you know, a billion you know, doses of Moderna, and, and we're going to give it to everyone free who's over 60. The exact opposite would be the case. Everyone would applaud. Everyone would say, at last, as an enlightened ruler who sees things clearly and is working for the will, the will of the people. He said, he said it would be the exact opposite. His approval ratings would go for the, through the roof if he did that. But the, the, do you think he'll do that? Do you think the party could, could survive the loss of face of depending on a foreign vaccine? Uh, evidently not. I, I mean, I think a lot of the vaccination discussion does, uh, it starts to feel... Uh, like people have staked out their positions. I mean, I've heard frequently that, you know, older Chinese people simply won't get vaccinated because of the history of low quality vaccines in China. That seems to be an argument that is made to back up um, the fact that the Communist Party refused to use its awesome power to vaccinate everybody. Um, uh, And, you know, I don't know. is that a factor, Jeremiah and David, uh, older people's reluctance to get vac- vaccinated? I think that just like in the United States, there's a lot of reasons for vaccine hesitancy. Uh, some of it, you're right, there's some historical reasons here. There's some, there's, that's certainly part of it. Some of it is that the most vulnerable populations are not necessarily in the cities, they're in the countryside or in smaller villages or towns. And, you know, the education level of that generation in those places is not super high. And so it's very, they're very susceptible to rumors. They're very susceptible to misinformation about vaccines as well. But I think one of the biggest reasons is that, and this kind of goes to what David was saying, the plan seems to be that eventually COVID would magically disappear in the rest of the world, or there would be some magic cure for it. Right. And so most people in China were just like, keep the, keep the, you know, we've got, we man the walls, pull up the drawbridges and let us know when it's over. And then it doesn't, and then it didn't end. 
And so exactly. for and, and that was an attitude That's amongst right. the people. Right, because most well people didn't think most people still don't think they're going to get COVID ever. And so this the the real challenge here is David saying so a lot of older people are like, Well, I'm not gonna get COVID anyway, so why do it? And even in the very beginning, there wasn't an, an a real effort to vaccinate older people because the first target groups were always, you know, the economically important workers, young people. We gotta keep them in the factories. And so there were some mixed right. messages in the beginning. And, we, you know, you think about how various forms of information and mixed messages cause all kinds of problems and confusion in the United States and other places over vaccine, you know, talking about a one-way trip to crazy town. And it, it, the, same, the exact same thing is here. Um, yeah. All those different, you know, the spectrum of hesitancy. And as David pointed out, there hasn't been, for whatever reason, a concerted effort or at least, there, at least until this week, a concerted effort to really combat that hesitancy and to set a realistic target. What they probably need to do is also set some kind of date, but that, of course, opens up all other issues. So, mm-hmm. you know, we'll have to see how this goes. I, I don't have a lot of faith, not so much in the vaccines. I mean, whether they work or not, it's great if they do, but whether or not they'll be able to meet these targets. I guess a crucial question is, uh, was this decision to pursue, keep pursuing the zero, zero COVID policy, the decision of uh, thousands of medical experts having, uh, you know, months and months of meetings on the topic, or was it the decision of one person? And we probably know the answer to that. That's that's a question. Right. And we don't know, yeah. but... We can, we can make an educated guess about the answer to that. Yeah. Right. And most people have made that same guess. But uh, yeah, I mean, especially because, you know, the optics right now about C coming out of party Congress having, you know, arrogated to himself more power than ever. So, yeah, I think it's it's a fair assumption. Speaking of, of coercive authority, what have you guys made so far of the police response to bring this back to the protests themselves? I mean, it differed, obviously, in different cities. Like in Shanghai, you know, you had this BBC reporter, Ed Lawrence, roughed up, even kicked, as I understand it, by cops and, and then detained. But what about in Beijing and, and other places that you're aware of? It does feel like, at least in Beijing, that the initial response was to contain the protests, make sure they didn't get out of hand. I mean, you know, people were saying some pretty inflammatory things, and the police, it felt, I mean, you, you may want to also, again, talk to people who are right in the middle of the crowd. My, my general policy in these situations is not to be there, uh, because there's nothing I can do to help, and my presence is probably just going to make it worse. But the it does feel like the police were a lot more hands-off. Now, there's an example. Uh, there was one group that kind of loudly proclaimed they were heading for Tiananmen, and this kind of got all on Twitter. Like, they're marching on Tiananmen Square. Well, I think what happened was they hived off from the main group on the Liangma River and were heading in that general direction 10 kilometers down the road. And the police were like, and the, and the police were kind of like playing pond hockey and kicked them back into play. Like, nope, 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 you're going to be over here. And so that was that was the first night. But again, it does feel like in Shanghai, and we talked about this in the beginning, that on night two and night three, either they got new orders or they were just tired of you know having to be passive in the face of you know direct threat, direct challenges to their authority. So the police, you know, were much tougher. And you know, you know, you know, journalists, you got to remember what these security guys they're hearing. You know, we think about the external propaganda about the West and hostile foreign forces and the evil media and all this stuff that gets published. Imagine what these guys get in their like private briefings. And so it's it's not I mean, it's it's a horrifying thing. And it's a hard I mean, say this. There aren't that many journalists right now in Beijing, and it is so much harder to be a journalist right now in China than at any other time I can remember. And, you know, the fact that the government comes across and says things like the, the, the statement about this, that they were just protecting him from getting COVID by kicking him in the head. Well, so, it's a well-known uh, cure, actually. It's a cure for a lot of things, but it ain't a cure for that. And it's, it's probably a cure for whatever ails like Chow Lee Jian, but it, it was not something that was appropriate for a, for a journalist who was just doing his job. So with that great image of Jolly Jen being kicked in the head, I think we can we can wrap this conversation. Thanks, guys. You know that was that was a ton of fun. Well, I wouldn't say it was a ton of fun, but it was all it's great to catch up with you and, and thank you for that on the ground reporting about what's happening. Jeremy and I are, are frustrated at not being able to actually you know see what's going on right now, and it's it's at the same time I'm I'm really glad as hell not to be there. But uh, anyway, 
Uh, thank you both. And uh, I look forward to having you guys back on the show again soon. Don't forget to check out the Barbarians at the Gate podcast. Uh, but uh, let's move on to recommendations first. Jeremy, do you want to make a quick plug for, for some of our fine China Project products? Yeah. Well, one thing I should plug that I haven't done on, on the podcast recently is Tip Sheet, which is our uh, morning, at least morning in the US, evening in China uh, business newsletter that covers uh, you know one major business story and updates from the Chinese business press every day. And it's currently free. You don't actually have to be a paid subscriber to get it. That may not last much longer. Uh, but yeah, tip sheet. Yeah, um, yeah. Great. Help us keep the lights on. All right. Yeah. Let's move on to recommendations. And uh, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off? What you got for us? So I am, in fact, as I mentioned earlier, going to recommend that Twitter account that Jeremiah mentioned, and it is indeed the same as Li Laosher, Bush and Li Laosher, which means teacher Li isn't your teacher, but the actual Twitter handle is why you Tojalur. And Tojalur, of course, means, you know, um, laughing, uh, sneakily laughing. Um, and it's, uh, if you're trying to follow what's going on in China, it's collecting pretty much everything that is being circulated on social media, including some of the images that may become iconic of this time, such as the workers hauling off the uh, Urumuchi Road sign in Shanghai. You know, it's the kind of most obvious kind of censorship. People are gathering at Urumuchi Road, so let's remove the sign. <laughs> <laughs> um, they won't be able to find the protest. That way. I'm really um, uh, horrified at myself for recommending anything on Twitter because I'm really hoping Twitter burns itself down <laughs> at the moment. But nothing has yet replaced it as the sort of uh, global place for breaking news. And one other account is Cindy Yu, who's the spectator uh, editor and podcaster based in London uh, and she actually put subtitles on a video of uh, the person that one of you mentioned who said you know the only foreign forces here are Marx and Angles uh, so Cindy used Twitter feed and why you told you Twitter feed all right uh, great great re recommendation Jeremiah, well, you're up next. What you got? Well, that Urimchi Road thing reminds me of something from back home in New Hampshire, the old joke about the guy who didn't want the deer crossing in his road, his yard anymore, so he moved the deer crossing sign. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, what I'd like to recommend is a book that I've been, work, uh, I've been talking about in a history discussion group here in Beijing. And for people who are interested in kind of a historical context for why public health and disease matters so much in modernity and in kind of the self-image of China as a modern nation, I highly recommend a book by the historian Ruth Rogaski called Hygienic Modernity, Meanings of Health and Disease in Treaty Port China. Yes, it's an academic book, but it's really well done. And it, it touches on a lot of the issues of why, issue, why things like disease, smells, hygiene, all of these things became encoded in a definition of modernity that then, of course, has been perpetuated and deployed throughout the 20th into the 21st century. If you're looking for the historical context for a lot of what's happening, um, this is a great place to start. Yeah, only thirty six ninety nine on Amazon <laughs> hardcover. No, that's not bad for an academic book. I'm Usually they're, they're just totally, totally unaffordable. So Ruth Rogaski, excellent recommendation. Thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, and David, what you got? Um, yeah, I'd like to do a recommendation of uh, a couple things by the same person. Uh, James Griffith, who's the Asia Griffiths rather, is uh, the Asia correspondent for the Globe and Mail, and actually we've interviewed him for our podcast. Um, uh, he has a great short article, uh, I guess today in the Globe and Mail, uh, called "In Rare Show of Weakness, China's Censors Struggle to Keep Up with Zero COVID Protests." And he just he basically says the same thing that I just said about this sort of bleed through of Twitter and and WeChat and, and Weibo and the fact that that the you know the Great Firewall was actually became a little bit of a bridge instead of a wall uh, during that and and he, he mentions other aspects of the censorship but the main thing is by the same author is what we interviewed him about is his book of last year I guess right. called Speak Not. Uh, Empire, Identity, and the Politics of Language. So the book is about language death in general world, worldwide, starting with his own native language, which is Welsh. Um, but then most of the book, or a huge portion of the book, talks about the languages that are near and dear to our hearts, or my heart anyway, the Cantonese, um, Tibetan, the, the, the various Xinjiang languages in China, and language uh, sort of cultural erasure 
or assimilation, the assimilation policy of downplaying and, and um, through the educational system, uh, letting the local languages erode so as to, um, to, as to promote national unity. Um, so his, his book is about that and covers some of these issues, uh, you know, very well. And, uh, you know, it has to do with a worldwide phenomenon, but, but in China, it's particularly uh, insidious. And uh, I think it's a good book to read just in general. And he's a smart guy too. Yeah. You should get him on the podcast if you have He's yeah. very prolific. Yeah. No, he, he wrote that book in uh, 2019, The Great Firewall of uh, yeah, China. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So he, yeah. he's quite an expert right. on, on, mm-hmm. on internet censorship in China. Excellent. Uh, and to me, by, by recommendation, is a short documentary that you can actually find on the New York Times OpDoc channel. Uh, it just dropped last night. It's called Happiness is Four Million Pounds. It's a uh, documentary by Hawu, who made 76 Days, uh, The People's Republic of Desire, and, of course, his old classic from, I think, 08 or 09, uh, Beijing or Bust. Uh, Howe is New York-based, really, really great filmmaker. This is really short. It's like 27 minutes or something like that. Uh, it's it's fantastic. It, it follows a young cub reporter as she tries to, to figure out this guy who's on the opposite end of the spectrum. She is idealistic and and you know quite naive and and lacking in confidence often he is this real estate speculator this like guy who's published all these books about how to get rich and he's just you know obsessed with with wealth and showiness i mean it's it's just people from different ends of of modern china colliding and it just the the interactions between them it's just fascinating it's a great piece of filmmaking uh, very short, so please watch it. It's called Happiness is Four Million Pounds. I'll I'll put a little uh, link to it on in the show notes, of course. All right, guys, thank you so much. Uh, what a what a thank fun you. conversation! And thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Great to see you, and I, I miss you both. And with your stateside, I hope we can hang out because uh, I don't see myself getting back to China anytime very soon. So <laughs> yeah, anyway. I don't know. I hope they let you out, the two of you, hostile foreign forces. <laughs> <laughs> at some point <laughs> best of luck we'll 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 start a campaign if you it's get been, it's you been know, like three and a half years can. being since i've been home it's it's a long time yeah yeah it yeah. is a long time thanks again okay we'll see you soon jeremy as always thank you kaiser the seneca podcast is powered by the china project and is a proud part of the seneca network our show is produced and edited by me kaiser guo we would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, since Twitter is still unbelievably alive, you can follow us there or on Facebook at, at thechinaproj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, hey, hey.